Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Paul Keelan. And I'm Jordan Puga. And today we are going to be discussing 1996's Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire is a seminal 90s flick, a huge cult classic. It straddles the line of both rom-com or rom-drom and sports film right in between. So this really appealed to both genders, four quadrants, almost every type of person. I remember being a young kid and it always being in my house and the VHS tape, it was just the biggest hit of the late 90s. And it opened at first place on the weekend of December 13th, 1996. So it came out very much at the tail end of that year prime for Oscar season, which it did very well at. It was nominated for many awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Actress. This film was hugely successful financially. It was made on a $50 million budget, and it ended up raking in $153 million worldwide, threefold of its investment. It also was the best-selling non-Disney VHS tape of all time. Three million copies were sold on the very first day and another million on the second day. It was sold out of Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, Walmart, Target, and Best Buy for weeks. It was just the biggest film for binge-watching or repeat-watching. I guess binge is a little strange. It's more like Netflix, but repeat watching. So let's set the scene and tackle some of the other movies that came out this weekend to really put us back there at the tail end of 1996. Of course, as I said, Jerry Maguire came in first. It just blew up. Tom Cruise is a star. This film made him even bigger and it was just a vehicle for his career that was already on top of the world and it just made him even bigger. But a lot of other great films came out this weekend and I'll let you start with the second film that came out this weekend. Yeah, so the second film that came out this week would be Mars Attacks, another Tim Burton classic. I love the way that that's the kind of dichotomy I have with the top two, Mars Attacks and Jerry Maguire, because, I mean, Jerry Maguire, you just said, it's a prestige movie now. It has a cast that's well-known, and to kind of add what you said, it was such a big movie on the zeitgeist at the time. Show Me show me the Money was the what's up, or the what's up that would come after, right? That was the reference at that time. Everyone was showing everyone the money, which I think is why everyone had to see this movie, right? You had to get that reference. But on the other end of the spectrum, we had Mars Attacks, which was the throwback 50 sci-fi, like, homage with a huge cast, even though he had the time. It has Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Jack Black, who wasn't big at the time, but Jack Black is in it. Ding Rames, if I remember right, is, is in it as well. Huge, huge cast is in the Mars Attacks. And that's a movie up on my list of favorites for sure. Particularly Tim Burton movies, probably my favorite Tim Burton movie is Mars Attacks. But yeah, that movie made 9.3 million that weekend. You know, a strong showing, but yeah, it's interesting that Jerry Maguire with an R rating, you know, would beat that up. Uh, the PG-13 flick with a bigger cast. Do you have any memories of, Mar of Mars Attacks at all though? Absolutely. Mars Attacks was one of my favorites. The images were so loud and vibrant. The aliens were such camp. They looked yeah. garish and gaudy. And I remember seeing the commercials and not knowing what Tim Burton was doing on an intellectual level, but knowing just on a visceral level what it was doing to me. I find that very interesting because it's a total parody of sci-fi schlock, right? It's a love letter to a bygone era film when, you know, Americans would sock aliens right in the dome. Uh, and it totally inflamed my imagination as a kid in a totally different way though that's because i didn't know what it was to allude to an old genre or pay homage to something so we were just in, inundated with like independence day uh, other space films that had no aliens like Apollo 13 or armageddon 
at this time period. Technically, Armageddon hadn't come out yet, but this was the 90s. I hadn't seen this tacky B-movie type of alien world before. And so it had an aesthetic that was unfamiliar. And that unfamiliarity just totally brought all the juices in my brain to life. I was <clears> full <throat> on board with Mars Attacks. And I've watched it probably six or seven times because anytime it came on TV, I just loved it. Like you said, Jack Nicholson's role is hilarious. Pierce Brosnan's in it, pretty Definitely. funny. And it's just the imagery of it is so silly, so goofy. The slime and the big heads and the type of images you would see in a film like them from the 50s <clears throat> has this very crude and vulgar and simplistic sensibility to it, but it's also the better for that. It brings to life this very, I would say like primordial aesthetic proclivity or, or excitement. And it really worked for me. That's it. Just like the imagery really worked for me. At number three, I'll jump in, uh, is 101 Dalmatians. And we spoke about this a little bit before, and you remember the animated version quite well. Oh yeah, the animated is classic, man. Love the anime. That was, that was up there with like, more like Peter Pan and all those I used to watch over and over the VH VHS classics. Yeah, it's, it's all time Disney classic. But for me, it was this one that really stuck. What shocked me was I thought it'd come out probably in 92 or something. I feel like I had seen this movie when I was younger. Glenn Close's Cruella de Vil in here is so good. It was like embedded in my psyche so strongly that I felt like I had many nightmares as a kid about Cruella de Vil. She repeatedly came up in my mind in a nightmarish way. So it's a very, very strong film for me. Even though I was technically almost 10 years old when this came out, I was older than I thought retroactively when I think back this time period. But I think it's really good. And I was pretty shocked to see how low its ratings and reception was in the general zeitgeist at the time mm -hmm. and still is today. And it was directed by Stephen Herrick, who was famous from the Bill and Ted's I just think he's great. He can almost do no wrong. He's hilarious. I think he also made Galaxy Quest, which is one of the all-time awesome. funniest films ever. Yeah. And so him doing a Disney film, it just worked for me. I really loved 101 Dalmatians. Let's keep on going down this list. And we're going to skip a few because we've talked about them or we don't really care about them too much. Let's yeah. go to one your dad worked on. I know because he always brought home cool jackets and just <laughs> crazy paraphernalia. Right. Star Trek First Contact. So I'll let you get us into that one. Yeah. So Star Trek First Contact, this would be like the second of those like revived 90s Star Trek movies. Like I think the first was Star Trek Generations where you had like Captain Kirk and the old crew meet and like, oh, of course it's Star Trek. It always has some kind of cool time loop thing. Um, and this one was no different. This is one of the story where it basically reveals the first contact with the alien Borg for those of you who are familiar with, this, with the story. One of the more not so memorable ones from the franchise. I remember see, like, seeing it with the group of the, the kids from the block, you know, going to see it because obviously my dad worked on it. So we were like, you know, hyped to go see it. It's actually a good story too. This probably resonate more with me as an adult now. Even for me, I was always more of a Star Wars fan than uh, Star Trek. Uh, but I remember Star Trek never clicked with me as a kid. I don't know about you. I feel like you maybe identified more with Star Trek than you did Star Wars in a way, probably, huh? In a way, because it, it really appeals to like intellect more than yeah. I think Star Wars is more visceral, adrenalized, kind of <laughs> a cowboy or like a adventure story. Yeah. Whereas Star Trek is way more about dualities, right? Yeah, like, kind of like this movie, the first contact story. But it's also because my my dad loved Star Trek. Like every night, he'd be downstairs with a carton of ice cream watching the latest episode of Star Trek, Enterprise, or whatever one was on at that period. Yeah, I remember your dad would be able, be able to tell us all the stuff that was like on the walls of our house and stuff. You know, like that would always bring home stuff because he was like a set painter for various movies and stuff. But in the 90s, a lot of Star Trek stuff. Yeah, that totally helped too because we ended up having these really cool like bomber jackets your dad would bring and he'd yeah. give to us, <laughs> which were rad. 
and I still have one to this day. Probably some other things too, but I definitely have the Star Trek bomber jacket in my closet. So we always had cool stories from your dad from behind the scenes, and my dad was just super into it. I really love the new ones though with like Chris Pine. Yeah, me too. That kind of iteration of Star Trek is probably my favorite. Yeah, they're good reboots, especially that second one, the one with Zachary Quinto. That one was really, I remember watching that one on a whim with my brother, and we both were like, damn, that was fucking dope. Absolutely. I remember coming home for a break during college and I was studying all this philosophy at that time and it just reiterated or went over a lot of these new concepts I was dealing with. And so it's a very complex film uh, that deals with a lot of existential nuances on, on, on a different level and it, and it does it very powerfully and potently. So yeah, I definitely love the new uh, Star Treks. Let's continue with this list and I'll let you tackle yeah. this one too. So this one is uh, coming out number eight that week would be Ransom, which was in its fifth week, I believe. It, it didn't have the same cultural appeal as Jerry Maguire, but it was as big at the time in terms of, give me my son. <laughs> that was the other catch line, right? It was show me my money and give me my son. You hit your hand on something just like Mel Gibson does all throughout that movie. So when I think of Ransom, I think of Mel Gibson on the phone and then slamming the phone, right? So anyways, Ransom's a story of Mel Gibson's story where his son's kidnapped and we go through the turmoil of that whole ordeal. I really identify with Ransom because I'll, we were young at this time. And all of you remember, but the news at that time was all about kids getting kidnapped. <laughs> it's like every summer, you know, that, that was a hot story. So as kids are always like, you know, looking for, we were kind of worried about getting kidnapped, I guess. So Ransom was that cool, like mythologizing of that meta experience for us. Cause like it's a rated R movie, we we're like 10, but it's one of those movies like I'd watch when my parents were like at this time gearing up for, you know, the Academy Award season. So yeah, so I have strong memories of just Ransom, just the, the marketing of Ransom and how actually effective it was. Yeah, I remember it pretty well because of Mel Gibson looking disgruntled and anguished in all the shots, right? Those close-ups of his face where he's just furious about his son. And he was at the height of his game at this time. I don't know what year Braveheart came out, but it was around this time. Mel Gibson was a huge Hollywood star. And this was, you know, just a typical kind of thriller. He's an airline owner. He's very wealthy. And, you know, his son gets kidnapped. As you noted, this was a popular type of narrative at this time. We loved Ransom movies. We loved movies like the one with Colin Farrell, where he's on the phone the entire time. Phone booth. Phone booth, right? That was a huge hit. And we had the Dental Washington one with the kid in Mexico, where he was like taking care of this kid who also got kidnapped. I just remember there's a lot of kidnapped movies at this time mm. or ransom movies. And Renee Russo is very strong in this and she was huge at this time. And there's also a huge role by Delroy Lindo, who is one of the big actors of this year. He was the star of The Five Bloods, Spike Lee's new joint. And many people are considering that role the forerunner of the Oscar season for Best Actor. I actually think Delroy is the only good part about The Five Bloods. That's my hot take. I think that movie's a total hot mess. Uh, Stylistically, it's edited sloppily. I just had to throw that in there because it is timely. Come at him. (laughs) Everyone's jumping on it. And I like Spike Lee. And you know what? That's kind of a compliment, too because what really really bugs me is people who are too tame to even make a hot mess so throws everything at it kind of like oliver stone does and in this one it completely missed and it felt totally botched but that's a digression i'll get back ransom was a total 90s film i remember it so well from the trailer to being in the theaters to everything so it's it's fun to even recall this movie because i hadn't thought of it in probably a decade or so we're going to skip Space Jam because we're going to tackle that in many episodes and go to number 10, which is The English Patient. And 
Crazily enough, neither of us have seen this, correct? No. Yeah, I have not. I watched the trailer yesterday, and I remember it from Oscar season. It was the big Oscar winner of 1997, and it basically beat out the movie we're going to be covering this podcast episode in every category. And it looks pretty epic. It stars Ralph Fiennes and Juliette Binoche, Kristen Scott Thomas, and it's this sweeping saga of the Saharan Desert and a badly burned man who is tended by this nurse who lives in an Italian monastery, the end of World War II. So it's this historical drama that stretches from Africa to Europe, and it's just big and filled with emotion and epic shots, kind of like a shortened Lawrence of Arabia or something, mixed with uh, that sort of epic saga that we loved as moviegoers in the 90s. It was like, you did a film like this and you get every award. Now, I think we're very jaded about these films. Lately, these films are all busts. I know Herzog did one, uh, I think, two or three years ago with Nicole Kidman, where she's like uh, in the Arabian desert, total bust. That's just one example of many. Uh, You mentioned that there's a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, the Seinfeld episode actually plays off just what you explained. This is such a well-revered movie. And in the Seinfeld episode, it's about centers around the character Elaine, who went to go see this movie, didn't like it, but her boss liked it. She has to pretend she likes the movie and everyone else likes it, but she hates it. In the end of the episode, she finally cracks. But now in reference, it's it's kind of like what you said. It's, it's in lieu or it's referencing the idea that this movie was so, so prestigious and winning the Academy Award and she absolutely hates it. So I have this weird connection. I'm a giant Seinfeld fan. So I actually, for that reason, I've kind of stayed away from the English patient because the complaint that just like you explained in your synopsis, which is a good synopsis, sounds very long and very 90s probably for that time. But I wouldn't mind watching it though. I'd, I'd probably come around to it. Yeah, I watched the trailer and thought that it, surprisingly enough, did not seem dated. It had a 90s vintage look where it looked already a little old visually, Mm. but it felt like it had a lot of resonant themes and emotions that would actually work. It did not seem boring by any stretch, even for being one of these films that I sometimes find boring, as we all Mm. do now. We're totally exhausted. Moving on to the next one, I'm going to tackle this one because it was always on in my house. My mom on the VHS because she's a huge Barbara Streisand fan. It's The Mirror Has Two Faces. This is kind of actually a fun film. It's a quirky comic tale about the relationship of a frumpy college lecturer who is an expert in romantic literature and another professor who wants a platonic relationship with an intelligent woman. He's pretty much celibate. It has a great dynamic between the two professors, which is played by Barbara Streisand and Jeff Bridges. It's one of Jeff Bridges' unsung roles, which pretty much is every role by Bridges, can't do no wrong. It also has Brosnan as like the sort of suave bad boy that also is trying to pick up Barbra Streisand's character and you're rooted against him. But it's it's fun, it's smart, it's intelligent, it's an adult movie, they have some witty banner. It's like this guy who's trying to stay away from the sensual world and this very sensual connoisseur meeting and it's got quippy dialogue. It's, it's pretty good, actually, for a film that was not only starring, but directed by Barbra Streisand. That brings us just to roll on to number 12, which is in our section of Jennifer films. Yeah, <laughs> Jennifer Cougar approved right here. Yeah, um, <laughs> just reminds us of her, which we said before, and I'll let you tackle that. For you. Yeah, so number nine, or sorry, number 12 is in its ninth week was Set It Off, which is starring Jada Pika-Smith, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and Kimberly Elise. Really good cast when you say that out loud, right? This okay. is one of those movies, kind of like Paul with uh, Barbara Streisand back there. This was one of those movies that was always on the background of my house. My sister loved this movie, loved the soundtrack. I remember the soundtrack being bumped that winter. But yeah, this is another one of those movies that reminds me of like Dead Presidents. 
had a good soundtrack, had a really good trailer, had a niche following. It's definitely one of those like nostalgic vibes for me. Yeah, I remember it really well because the cast, right? Queen Latifah, Vivica yeah. Fox, and Jada Pinkett Smith, right? Well, she was Jada Pinkett then, right? Those three. One of those where it's female crew robbing a bank. There's a series of films that I have seen about that, like Widows that just came out. There was a few others. Do you remember any other films about a group of females robbing a bank that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s with an all-female lead cast? Yeah, so we talked about Dead Presidents. We had Sugar and Spice, right, which featured an all-female cast of cheerleaders who dressed in, you know, quirky masks to rob the bank. Actually stars uh, James Martin, who plays Cyclops in X-Men. That's why I always remember that one as well. So that pretty much wraps up the list of the films we're going to talk about today. There are some other classics, but we'll talk about them on other episodes. So that sets a really good scene for all of the smaller films that came out on this weekend of late 1996. So now let's get into the film of the week, Jerry Maguire. With talking about Jerry Maguire, I feel like there's no better place to start than to look at Cameron Crowe because his DNA is all over this film. And he is one of the signature 90s filmmakers. He's kind of the emo filmmaker in my mind. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And he's had an amazing career, starting with Fast Times at Richmond High, where he broke out writing the screenplay, to being the director and writer of Say Anything with John Cusack, to this film, and then he went on to make Almost Famous, which is probably his apotheosis of his career because it really touched on who he was before his Hollywood professional life took off as a Rolling Stone writer. And he even made Vanilla Sky, which was a bizarre film, but another collaboration with Tom Cruise. And then he went and did Elizabethtown, which I really liked, but he started to fade. People started to become jaded or disaffected by his kind of melodramatic or melancholic tone. And all the way to, I think, 2015, he made Aloha. And people are just over Cameron Crowe these days. I still like him. I forgot I skipped over We Bought a Zoo with Matt Damon, which is actually pretty good. It came out in 2011. He definitely is a very middle-brow, very humanist and out of all these films, which one have really resonated with you? Because these are seminal, huge American films. So let's start the first one with the Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's because I remember watching that one at the pyramid when, when I'd watched like American Pie movies, a lot of those high school themed movies. Um, even like the one with Freddie Prinze Jr. and She's and All That. that. She's all that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all those, you know, those kind of themed teenage coming of age tales pretty much. But I remember watching that with you because it was basically pitched to us as the older version of American Pie, like the predecessor of American Pie, which it is not. Like It's completely different. Like you said, much more humanistic, much more emo <laughs> in a way. I like that you brought it up with American Pie because we saw American Pie. We were so into it, probably because of Blink-182's cameo and also because of Nadia and the fact that we had to sneak into the movie theater. One time we failed, we saw something that was PG-13. I think it was like a lukewarm, tepid horror film that got a PG-13 rating. And I remember sneaking in at the mall theater and then they come in with their flashlights and kicked us out. And then we saw Mystery Men and it was so crowded. We sat on the stairs. We actually wanted to see Mystery Men. We were not trying to sneak into American Pie and they came in. And once again, they kicked us out for a different reason. They're like, you can't sit on the stairs. That's a fire hazard. Our parents were seeing another movie at the same time. And they did not allow us at this time to see American Pie. 
And at that time, the Usher just allowed us to pick whatever movie we wanted to see because it was a logistical problem. They had sold too many tickets or the people sat in odd arrangements and they just wanted to get us in a different theater and to make us happy. And so we picked American Pie and we ended up being able to see it, which was a really funny story. And I remember even, this is really, really funny, sneaking out of the back door after seeing American Pie and walking around the movie theater to meet our parents in the front to fake it as if we saw Mystery Men and then having to lie and talk about Mystery Men on the drive home. It's such a funny story. Uh, It was definitely memorable. And we finally saw American Pie for that reason. And then we were all about trying to see Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, It turned out to be quite better, I'd say, with Cage's role, with Spicoli, and that great soundtrack. I mean, it's just so good. I love the soundtrack with Jackson Brown. Bringing up the soundtrack, that's the other thing that Cameron Crowe is so renowned for. It's the music. Did you notice anything about the music in Jerry Maguire or any of these other films? Oh, uh, obviously with Almost Famous, all about music in that time period. I will say Jerry Maguire, I noticed the Tom Petty song and I'm trying to think back. I didn't pick up on music as heavily as I usually do with these sports movies. I feel like I, you know, call out like the Blink Silent ripoff songs, like sports jams. And I realized he, he picked what's now very common radio music. So it plays generically to my ear now. So like I, as, as we talked about what songs appeared in it, I'm kind of like going back. Oh yeah, that song was in it. That song is a song. I know it's a hit and I didn't really resonate, which maybe speaks to uh, how swift his hand is as a director I and mean, making pretty realistic tone to it. Yeah, he picks very classic, generic rock songs. And without Almost Famous or without knowing his background as a journalist for the Rolling Stone, they would come off as kind of expensive, wasteful entries into these films. But for something about any Cameron Crowe film, they feel like him. They have a, another level to me of meaning. And almost all of his films has a scene with Free Falling, that's his all-time favorite song, in my opinion. And this one has a great one. I love that scene, actually, with Tom Cruise just spelting out the lyrics on his brief and transient moment of euphoria after uh, signing Cush back or realizing that Cush might stay with him. He ends up not staying with him. But when he's finally thinking maybe he might find his feet again after leaving the company, uh, that song comes on, and it's a big moment in this film. Crow loves this type of classic rock, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Replacements, he throws in a little bit of Nirvana in here too, in ACDC. So he plays around here. Of course, so there's all- throwing all these you know bands that I like and listen to. I feel like I was just tone deaf to the soundtrack as I'm listening to these names. I don't remember any of these songs in there. It's interesting because I tend to have that, that ear for that. Yeah, you do. You tend to have a even more sensitive ear than me to the music and to the sound cue. So I was kind of found it curious that you didn't pick up on this as much. You brought up a good point about how he does use free falling a lot. And I think that scene you liked right now that you described so well is a scene I rolled my eyes at. I found myself doing that a lot in this movie, this viewing. And maybe I think the way you set it up is kind of part of it. It's too structured. It breaks that plane between sentimentality and authenticity that he's balancing in this movie. It's too much of that feel-good story that's being forced. It's too much of that balancing act. But I think that scene though, going back to you where he's belting the lines, and I like the buildup where he's finding the radio stations that are all the wrong music for his moment. And it's the idea of him shaping that. I like that. It's the idea that he knows this is a cool life change moment, but the tone's not right. Uh, it has to be cool enough, which speaks more Tom Cruiseian than it is Jerry Maguireian. The character is in this state of authenticity, right? It's his his crisis moment. He's like you just said, he's gonna have his saving grace of the the number one draft pick. But the music has to be right. He just got the number one dude. You can't be listening to Spanish radio and going crazy. He has to like build it up right, which I guess does speak largely to the character in that way. But I always felt myself rolling my eyes at that moment because then it 
takes away from the belting of it because I really like the buildup. Then we get to the belting of it. I'm like, it would have been so much cooler if he was excited with the Spanish guy in the background <laughs> saying some gibberish or something like that. It, it's uh, maybe that's my weird alternate take of that scene. Uh, but it does speak to my dilemma with Cruz's portrayal and his eccentricities, which he's so well known for and delivers so well. And then what I feel is like a clash with the with the material of the script. Great point. I like that you brought up the sentimentality of the song, right? Kind of clashing in a way with the character, yet also superimposing in a way that has some harmony to it. You could take it either way. Mm. It's all based on how you're vibing or feeling with the film. It's interesting to me is you saw like, is this a Tom Cruise moment or is this a Jerry Maguire moment? Is this the character or is this the actor? Because that binary in this film is very strong. Tom Cruise comes out as Tom Cruise so much in this film. He just lays it all on the line in the way that we know Tom Cruise to be, even off screen, and mm -hmm. blurs the line between his fictional self and his real self. Just to note, it's actually kind of interesting that the film was actually scored by Cameron Crowe's wife, Nancy Wilson, who was a member of Heart, the rock band Heart. That just shows wow. how many ties he has with the music industry. Uh, and it also garnered some momentum for the Bruce Springsteen track, Secret Garden. I don't really know that song too much, but it became a huge hit after this film and it even featured quotes from it. You had me at Hello and Show Me the Money were spliced into the song for the radio edit. So rock and roll is all over this film and perhaps no more explicitly than in the scene where the babysitter hands Tom Cruise the cassette tape. I think it's Coltrane and Mingus yeah. and gives them this long didactic lecture about the grandiosity and importance of jazz. What did you think about that awkward moment? I love that dude. I love that scene. Those little highlights, him, uh, Regina King we'll get to later. These little moments of these secondary characters I think are really like, this one's more endearing. He's that break of genuine comic relief that I think the movie needs. And the movie's funny. There's lots of funny stuff like from Tom Cruise stumbling in the office. But here we get that almost like quintessential weird other observer of the um, object of affection. It's almost like you have to have that. And it's always in the romantic movies usually. You always have that third party stuck in the friend zone. You can't cross the boundary, right? That's, that goes back to like those high school movies we were just talking about. And, but he's very funny. He doesn't, he's not actually that. He's a legitimate just babysitter and wants to do to treat her right. It's played off like he might have a crush on her. At least that's how I read the beginning. But he's like, he's really like jazz. That's what I like about it. He's more inclined to like, you should like jazz too. And jazz would be really cool when you guys make love. He doesn't say that. But he's like, this will sell you on jazz, but it works for this. It's like this weird like connection that I find so hilarious because I love in the background this the jazz music that they don't understand and clashes with the romance. It's a good juxtapositioning. And it just speaks to the character because it calls back to that. He actually listened to that funny dude. I really think also it was kind of important for the babysitter right the nanny uh, mm -hmm. who's a male nanny to give him the tape and kind of give him permission because at that moment there was still a little doubt I think in Cameron Crowe knew this with the viewer of like who is this guy's role does yeah. he have a romantic interest is Tom Cruise kind of swooping in and that was also just kind of this rite of passage from a man that was close to her in a platonic way but I was thinking about how that speech was basically Cameron Crowe putting himself in a proxy, right? And just bragging about his music knowledge, which is so common. And it then told me, oh, this is a very narcissistic director. And then I was starting to think, I really like narcissistic directors because they're more intimate and personal. And I think that's another way to define Cameron Crowe. 
he puts himself into it so strongly. Even this world, even though it's not the music industry, right? It's the sports industry and it's with agents and show business. It's completely parallel. It's what he knows. It's what he worked in. It's very autobiographical to a degree, I'm sure. Um, we'll get into some things later, like the mission statement. He even wrote a real mission statement to go along with this film. Um, so some funny stuff like that. You bring up a good point. And like the other day, he wrote a 25-point mission statement, but that is not the crux of this film. I want to get to that. Like the thesis is I've had a crisis of faith because I am a proprietor of exploitation, pretty much. That's his like crisis of faith. I'm a cog in the machine that exploits the athlete. I need a change. But the story does not change him. He's basically depending on 50-50 chance that Cuba Gooding Jr. I pray this guy doesn't get hurt so I can cash in still at the end. So he's still left in the same position no matter how you look at the movie. Like he just positioned slightly over and just lost a lot of money and lost a lot of recognition. So much of the movie of, again, him changing and what she's drawn to, she quotes, you know, I'm in love with the man he could be or wants to be, the man he isn't. It's so much, it goes into that crisis moment. And I just want to get into like the way it's portrayed because it's, it's again, what we talk about in sports movies, but this is, is this informational dump of the character and the higher calling, which is in every story, like, like with Falco, the higher calling of Gene Hackman's character, come play for us, we'll give you the system, right? Answer the call, right? We have that in all these sports movies, just like in science fiction, etc. Here, we get the higher calling from the character psyche, right? Or coming from the kid whose father is a hockey player who has a concussion. And I want to start there because the father has a concussion. He wakes up and one of the first things he says after he realizes who's in the room is, I got to play. I got my bonus coming up. Coach needs me to play. Doc, can I play? Um, and of course, the kid gives him the look. And Jerry Maguire at this point is portrayed as callous, doesn't understand the look. And he's more focused on the client, right? But that's my point, though, is this is the moment he's going to come reflect on and it's going to want to change him. And I want to get into like your opinion. Like, does this movie adequately address that? Does it do it disservice or does it work in its advantage to some degree? to not even address that at all and just take that for granted that the character embodies this mission statement. That's a great segue and a great question. I'm glad you started with that kid, right? He's the son of a hockey player. It's a very intense scene. This young boy whose father just had a concussion confronts him in the hallway of a hospital, right? He asks him aloud who is going to stick up for his almost brain dead father, right? His dad is a dope kind of came across as a dope on the bed when he's trying to like goofily remember everyone's name and he of course stumbles on Jerry Maguire at first and Jerry Maguire gives him this ingratiating kind of pep talk about your father's like a superhero no one could stop your father and the kid is more realistic than him and he sees through his car salesman shtick Jerry Maguire is trying to play him off as this naive unsophisticated artless young person right and at the end of trying to build up the kid's father so that he could end up making more capital off his father, even though his father is literally physically in a bad condition, the kid sees straight through his bullshit and he straight up says, fuck you and flips him the bird. It's a triumphant moment. It's really strong. And it's also a moment in which Jerry Maguire has a moment of reckoning. I think he really takes this seriously. That little kid, he showed him just how much of a prick he was. He then has his crisis of conscience and goes in this bender, eats a few pieces of pizza, then can't really sleep and writes this mission statement. Not a memo, but a mission statement. He repeatedly mm. insists. Yeah. 
Uh, we can get into the mission statement because it's kind of funny, but I would like to hear your opinion on just the basics of why do you think they reiterate that it's not a memo and that it's a mission statement? For the appearance of depth, because we need to be believe that sexy Tom Cruise is also deep and smart and capable of not just punching and running and working out while he's writing. He also writes well, and he writes so well that he's convincing. He's a rhetorician. It's smart by Cameron Crowe, but like you point out, when you break down what's in the memo, which is sporadically sprinkled out throughout the movie, it paints a different picture than the actions of the character, right? Because you just gave a great breakdown of, of what, what's wrong with it. He just realized what his job is, pretty much. One day he woke up and realized, I make a lot of money off of a limited amount of time that athletes have. So I have to maximize that amount. What's every agent does, right? He did a good job. This guy's going to get a bonus. But the crisis of conflict then is you need to get out of that industry, i.e. you should shift into not being an agent, a sports advocate of some type, right? They're like You should be working with Will Smith from our other movie on concussion and attacking the NFL on that, right? Anyways, it doesn't work out that way because again, Tom Cruise, I mean, our Jerry Maguire isn't moved. He is not that mission statement. Even visually, I, I like the way it's visually conveyed the struggle because it's really reductive and I think it's intended to be. It's Tom Cruise in a suit with a cell phone swimming through water. It's a music video. It's Nirvana. It's simple. It's not high film or anything like that. It's not the, the Godfather. This is basic symbolism. The suit's drowning him. And then he, he's visually sweating in bed. It's all really just really basic indicators, but they're all, I like that they're super trivial because it's, it doesn't impact him. The character doesn't change. In fact, he doesn't want to get out of the industry. He's, his big idea is I'm going to write a myth about the industry, what the industry is in the past and could be. And it's all this idea of what it isn't. He's a young dude and his mentor would have been the dude who set up what is there today, the dude who profited off that. So it's a weird thing when you really think about the way it breaks down. I know I've been going for a second, but I just want to bring up one quote that stood out for me is when we get Renee Zellweger, because she's our, our character who's super moved by the mission statement. Remember, it's not a memo, it's a mission statement. And she's read it and she's enthralled and she quotes it when you're in the airport. And I love when she says it. She says, it's, it's just gibberish because like it's a great scene. The kid's interrupting them. So the quotes are getting breaking up. But the quote, you get the sense of what it is. I like the part where you said, embrace what is still original and force open the tightly clenched fist of commerce and give back for the greater good. Where in sports, particularly sports agency or sports players, is that beneficial to them? Is that why they get into the game? You know, that is something that belongs on a college campus to get professors better pay. You know what I mean? It's, it's the opposite. It's for a different workforce. It's for a different type of labor. Completely different realm than professional sports. Man, you bring up so many great points here to unpack. The mission statement is a farce on many levels, and I'm completely on board with you about that. And almost everyone is. Let's just look at a few scenes later where he meets up with Bob Sugar, right? Who's his boss, played by Jay Moore. The second that Bob Sugar fires him, he doesn't care anymore about all of those ethical, idealistic, and quixotic goals. In the voiceover narrator says, you know, I'm back to just wanting to beat you. He's back to his shark-like competitive cutthroat self. It basically was a self-delusion, right? He was in a moment of perhaps honest self-deprecation, but it is who he is. I like that he brings up that, oh, I was a lawyer before and something about his father. But you realize like he was never ambitious to be like a pro bono lawyer that fought for the lower disenfranchised citizens of society. No, this is a corporate rascal. If he was a little more self-aware of that and, and if we weren't told to be so celebratory of how moral he was, I would find this film a little bit more digestible. 
to be honest. But I think that we're supposed to fawn over him in a very false way. A few other things I want to bring up about the mission statement, because it is really interesting. It was inspired by a real mission statement, actually, written by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was at the time the head of Disney in 1991. In the memo, he decries the blockbuster mentality that had taken hold of the film industry in the early 90s, and he wants them to go back to singles and doubles. It's a very, very famous memo. But even that is taken and recontextualized in ways that I just don't believe. Yes, Jerry Maguire pretty much paraphrases him when he says, fewer clients, less money, kind of this entrepreneurial aspiration to get back to the basics. But he also adds in all this other hoopla, like you said, about being altruistic or doing greater good for the world. (laughs) And it's just a bunch of baloney and you can't help but to realize it's just a bunch of baloney. It's a mission statement that's sorry, it's a mission statement that fits in today for like tech companies or startups. Those are the goals you want because those are the things that sound in buzz, they sound sexy talking about you know multi-million dollar contracts and like we talk about that limited shelf window it, it, they're too conflicting completely conflicting he's in the wrong industry and i like that you brought that up too the guy needs to just change professions if he really truly wanted to suddenly do good for the world right if he had this existential epiphany all right or midlife crisis and realized that he was basically a scumbag working in the capital machine He could quit his job, take the money that he did have, downsize and do something else. But that's not what he's aiming for, right? He was really just aiming for power. That's why he runs to Kinko's, doesn't proofread or edit this 25-page paper. (laughs) It's possible, but he doesn't do any of that. He runs to Kinko's without a second thought, so which leads us to think that he is truly in a sort of manic state, which you're always on edge about this entire film, right? Is he sane or is he psychotic? Is he sociopathic? Uh, I do like that they're flirting with that, though. Because, you know, that's where genius exists and that's where bravery exists. And that's where the leap of faith exists if you want to get Kierkegaardian. But he's definitely there, right? We also got to quote the the great guy. I don't know who plays the guy behind the desk at Kinko's, but he has perhaps the best line in in the scene, in in the movie. That's how you become great, man. Hang your balls out there. such interesting way of setting up because it's so early in the movie and that to me is a straight like fast times at Ridgemont High like you know the dude behind the scene behind the counter at the 7-Eleven or whatever it has that kind of vibes to it that kind of like higher wisdom from the, the unsuspecting authority. That character is really strong for me for many reasons because he is supposed to be a surrogate lens of the audience I think. I think that Cameron Crowe is trying to tell the more uninformed or a little denser viewers that this is what you're supposed to think about this, right? Mm -hmm. This is a person fighting the man, fighting the system, hanging his balls out there. In that way, it's condescending. And it's also narcissistic because Cameron Crowe actually released an actual mission statement years later with a bunch of random banal aphorisms in it, like coffee tastes better at night because it tastes like college, which is him waxing nostalgic about his college years, or something like less dancing, more truth. Just a bunch of idioms. They sound more... like Jerry Maguire. <laughs> they do sound like Jerry Maguire. And, and, and Jerry Maguire is him, right? It's this sort of conceited, muted madness that he infects the film with. I think it's for better and worse. Like I said, I like his narcissism, but I recognize it. There's egotistical touches all over this film. And it does play better, like the way you phrase it, when you are more in tune with the work of Crow preceding it and look at it as, as a lens of that. 
I didn't really look at it that way as I was watching it this time until we started preparing for the discussion. I didn't realize Kevin Crow directed it. And as you start thinking about Fast Times and these other ones, like you point out, it does leave some good signatures that, like you say, might help guide a familiar viewer. Yeah, and to think about it, like he started his career as only a screenwriter. So Fast Times, he wasn't the director or anything else. He was the screenwriter. So this is a person writing a screenplay. It mirrors the film itself, right? Uh, as Tom Cruise himself says uh, through Jerry Maguire, it might be a little touchy-feely, he says. Cameron Crowe here, I think, is foreshadowing the rest of the movie. He's telling mm. us this movie is going to be a little touchy-feely. Think about the title, The Things We Think and Do Not Say, The Future of Our Business. The second part doesn't really interest me that much after the colon, but the first part I love, The Things We Think and Do Not Say. It sounds like a dashboard confessional song, (laughs) (laughs) right? And what is the motif of emo? It is so self-indulgent. And this mission statement is so self-indulgent. I love the fact that he puts it in the people's cubbies, right? And that very morning, the second he walks out, they'd all read all 25 pages, I guess, while they drank their coffee and give him a standing ovation just completely out of the realm of legitimacy to me at this point i love it for that and i crack up for that but i roll my eyes for that as well it's another one of those roll your eyes scenes because it's so it's like they're in an auditorium but speaking to his credit because i do see myself going back and seeing some of these scenes i did like more and the next scene that comes up is the race for the clients and i like that scene because just for all the reasons we talked about it's him dropping the mission and going back to the competitive shark it's to save save your ass what you can get save the money you can you can save and then you work from there pretty much he's a realist but it's it does show that scene where you, you get the rise and all that it's really you know, they're like, okay, I guess I like him. Then you get those two dudes who are like, he's going to be fired in a few weeks. One was played by the, the guy who played the father in uh, Grounded for Life, that TV show. But I like that little simple dialogue of these people don't like each other. It's an environment of not built a friendship or team camaraderie of anything like that. They're all super replaceable. He's no different. So it really does set up that next scene nicely when he gets fired by his, his former protege or whatever. Setting aside the hypocrisies of Jerry Maguire as a character, that is a very entertaining moment. And the scene where he actually leaves the office after he's fired is a classic. It stuck with me to this day and not many scenes stick with me. It was even parodied, I read, in the film Half-Baked. Did you catch that? Oh yeah. That's one of those movies, like I love Half-Baked. That was one of those like first stoner comedies. I remember we we watched like when we were younger. And that was one of those like reference points I actually got because we had seen this. I'm like, oh, he's making fun of Jerry Maguire. That's how I relate to this movie a lot. like that you had me at hello is a commonly made fun of in all sorts of pop culture but yeah that that one with, with uh jim brewer who's going to come with me when he leaves the record store ties to another cameron crow movie. oh no that's not cameron crow is high fidelity when he works in the record store i'm so glad you brought that up right. i was meaning to talk about that but we segued so that's a nick hornby written film and i just want to jump in now i'm going to interrupt yeah. because i want to bring it up that there is no two directors that parallel each other more than Nick Hornby and Cameron Crowe to me. Just think about how both are obsessed with rock and roll history, with writing essays on rock and roll, and with this same type of sentimentality, right? It's this very white, very middle class, very kind of corporate sentimentality, right? If you don't know Nick Hornby, he also made About a Boy. He made recently Juliet Naked, Fever Pitch. He does weird stuff too, right? But it's all like Barnes and Noble novels that he writes that end up being films. It's very, very Nick Hornby. And now I'm going to flip and start speaking a little favorably about Crow. And though it is self-congratulatory, I think he also has some humility and some self-criticism that is authentic. Throughout the film, Jerry Maguire 
comes off in a very ambivalent way. I don't think we absolutely love him or hate him. He comes off as someone who cannot be alone. He comes off as someone who is wishy-washy, right? Even when he's writing his mission statement, he's like, is it a breakdown? Is it a breakthrough? He never really knows his way. And you have to believe that someone doesn't just have a snap of the finger paradigm shift, mm-hmm. that it takes time to get out of these bad habits. And the true angel of the film is Renee Zellweger's character, Dorothy Boyd, because she is the real idealist who sees those words and is able to give up so much. And that's why that scene is so strong. It's not because of Tom Cruise. He's still coming off as a kind of petulant, sulky brat to me when he leaves the office. He really is. I'm not on his side yet. It's hilarious in some really comedic moments when he goes and gets the goldfish. I love that. It's absolutely brilliant. But her standing up It's cliche, but it is so strong. It gives you, if you're corny and like that type of stuff, the goosebumps. And I think it really does. It gives you the feels. I love this quote by David Ehrlich from IndieWire about this scene. I noticed this too, and it's also pointing out the moment after Jerry Maguire and Dorothy leave the room. And he says, on his way out the door, Jerry gives a speech that's filled with enough moral indignation to fuel a Frank Capra movie. And the immediacy with which business returns to normal after he leaves the room is one of the most existentially frightening beats of its kind since the stock market scene in La Eclise. So he's a big cinephile. He's bringing up and alluding old school films that some of you might not get. But I want to touch upon that. That was my favorite shot of probably the movie. It's that aerial shot. And the second Jay McGuire walks out, no one gives a shit. Everyone just completely resumes. I thought that was brilliant. I don't know if you captured that or lingered on that as much as I did. I like that. It applies to every office, every public building in general. I always like that idea that when madness happens and people kind of resume their stuff, particularly in workplace settings, like this goes to office space and all sorts of movies. But I've only kind of go on with Kerry, what you said, because I kind of think I think I have a different reading. This wasn't my favorite scene. I find myself struggling through Renee Zellweger's part, the part that you kind of point out, because use the word idealistic, but she's also impressionistic and also opportunistic because it goes back to the scene that sets us up as well. The whole point of the airplane is just to be a symbol of classism. First class, as she says, used to mean you get a better meal now it means you have a better life and that just guides that entire scene because that's what we get here is that jerry mcguire represents to her a better life he represents money access a father for her child that is what that line is really he is all that stuff and even though she doesn't use those words i said father of my kid my way out of you know living with my sister who has all these divorced women over all the time we find out she's 26 in her words she's the most single 26 year old mother ever i'm sure there's a bunch of six-year-old kids in high school kids who are rolling their eyes when they watch this movie but again it's that whole idea of it's all her life is so minuscule and so small and he's my way out Okay, so this is what the movie is reinforcing a little bit more. This is the dynamic. It does speak to the idea that Jerry Maguire, he might be like a manic depressive bipolar character. Like that is definitely like an underlying thing here. The impulsivity to jump into a relationship with your your only employee. You only have multiple employees. You have one employee and that's the one you're going to hook up with, right? You're just one you're going to go get drunk and like pour your soul out to. It, it speaks to that, the idea that, going back to what I want to bring it back to, the idea of the office going back to normal. They know Jerry Maguire. They're going back to another sanitizing ties, ties great with the bachelor party where you get the montage of women just saying, Jerry can't be alone. Jerry, They all know Jerry. Jerry can't do this. Jerry's always that dude. He's going to come back to the quick buck, the quick easy he likes that life, you know what I mean? He doesn't want to get away from it. When I watch this scene, it's almost cringeworthy for me. Of course she's gonna go with him, but she's gonna go with him for the wrong reasons. And we're gonna we're gonna want to celebrate these reasons. I think that's what my problem is with the movie as I watch it, is he does want us to, for the most part, celebrate these reasons. I don't think he wants the audience to reflect on these reasons as much as we're gonna do in this podcast. We're gonna talk about these in depth. 
most people are going to watch the movie and we'll talk about people who love this movie at this time because it was viewed more as a romantic date night flick. Every adult in our, in our realm saw this as a date night movie. So it had that kind of label on it as well. So I think as we dissect that, that's where I had the clash with, with that particular iconic scene. Man, you really deconstructed it so well that I can't even defend <laughs> Dorothy's character in that sense. And I just want to in turn critique Crow for putting that line in especially about first class used to be you know just a meal now it's a way of life because it then turns her character for some readings the rest of the film into just this quiet covetousness right um, yeah, she really just wants the better life that's kind of gross I, I completely agree and without that though without that one line for the rest of the film she comes off as pretty pure as really believing in his ethos and in his message and in his crusade and jumping on board. But because of that, you're realizing, hmm, she's taking a huge risk with her healthcare, being a single mother, all these other things. And you could tell she's attracted to him, right? Because she's swooning when he's telling the story about proposing to his fiance, which is very glib. It's a very like bloated and inflated recapitulation of that a huge moment in his life, but it still shows how Jerry Maguire is just so full of himself. The height of vain. And she is attracted to it. She really is. And she's attracted to it for some of the right reasons and for some of the wrong reasons. I don't want to just say that it's only negative to be vain necessarily, because there is the magnetism to that. And that's why we love Tom Cruise as a culture. That's why he is the Hollywood celebrity of the last uh, few decades. I would say besides maybe Brad Pitt and Leo Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, I don't know if anyone who really is a true Hollywood class A world celebrity like Tom Cruise. And it's because he has this sort of almost predatorial energy. Definitely. That's a good of, way of putting it. Yeah. Of love me, love mm -hmm. me. And he goes for it. And he's all it. And he's all unfiltered, undiluted passion. And you have to take both of it at the same time because he does bring us that exuberance. I mean, I fall completely enraptured by his performance in this film many times as well. I know he's a personal mess. I know he's a, if I take it ethically, filled with holes and maculations that stain his personality or his character. And he has a lot of rotten elements, but I could forgive that because he's a person, he's a human. And that's another thing about Cameron Crowe is I don't think he likes perfection or ever seeks perfection. I think he thinks we're a bundle of mistakes. He's, like I said, he's a humanist and the humanist loves our complexities, our paradoxes and contradictions. But he definitely is tackling the theme throughout the film and he really has a central theme and it's that the world is dominated by cynicism, right? And it takes a hell of a lot to get over that. And I want to jump back to the aerial shot that I sort of set up. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because of why I think it's so strong is that you have this moment where someone bears their soul, right? He is naked before everyone in the office, spiritually at least. He completely embarrassed, completely vulnerable. No one says a thing. No one does a thing. And the second he walks out, what's the instinct? It's to completely shun that, eliminate that into the past and get back to work. And I just love that. I really do. It's, a, it's kind of a Christ moment where, you know, Christ is screaming the gospel and everyone is completely ignoring it. Not to say that Jerry Maguire is Christ or the gospel, but it is that feeling of if you do have that idealism, you do come across as delusional, which Jerry Maguire is. So I'm very glad that you brought us back to the airplane because it also introduced us to Ray Boy, the precocious young big headed boy with the spiky blonde hair and the cute glasses that was the biggest hit in the 90s. What did you think about his performance? What did, coming back to it, 
how did it compare to the iconography of his role in this film throughout the past few decades, just in your memory? It was meh. JP was better. I'll throw that out there. JP for life. Hashtag JP should have been casting this, but no. I feel like the parts with him and Tom Cruise are very weird for me. Tom Cruise with him, the interactions are not genuine. Tom Cruise has his weird grin going all the time. The story's supposed to make us feel like the kid's comfortable with Tom Cruise. I think that's my problem is I don't feel like the kid acting with Tom Cruise is comfortable with Tom Cruise around him for a lot of these scenes. When we talk about quality, especially in the 90s, so many movies centering around kids. We talked about a few like Angels in the Outfield, even Terminator with the young cast, like Terminator 2 with John Connor. Like these are not that young, but you know, young kids are, are a huge deal in the 90s in terms of these movies. There is a performance here that stood out. Like whoever played the son of Cuba Gooding Jr., his authenticity with the family, the dynamic of him and his father, the best line when he says, show me his money. Are you hearing me? He's like, I hear you, daddy. Show me the money. Like perfect. Like these perfect like cues. To me, that was the cuteness. People love this kid. And I didn't think he was that adorable. I didn't have a lot of like awe moments or anything like that as I watched it, which I remember a lot of people did for this film. I think it was the dynamic between him and Tom Cruise. There's like these scenes that they just didn't really work. And I get the parts that were supposed to be cute. Like the idea he needs to run back into the room before the mom catches him out with Tom Cruise when, you know, at the date or whatever. But it detracts from the film for me because he's Tom Cruise's whole reason for being with her is for the kid is what we end up finding out in like the third act. Again, the whole time I'm kind of like laughing. I'm like the kid doesn't even want to be around you. He looks scared shitless sometimes in some of these scenes. I, I, just, I'm, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and how many takes it took to get what we got with this movie. Yeah, I think they just push it too hard a little bit. First, he's allergic and barfing. Then he's cruising around the baggage claim, giving high fives. And then he has the quippy, funny dialogue about how much a head weighs, right? At eight pounds, which is got a pretty funny backstory in the, he actually said it on set and Cameron Crowe added it last minute. So I like that aspect, but it's just screaming like this kid is cute and you need to turn into mush before his presence. And it goes too much for me. They don't have as bad of a rapport to me as you felt though. I would have to say, I actually found some of the moments quite touching nonetheless. Just the little ones, like when they're eating Cracker Jacks in the morning or when Jerry is drunk and he wants to go to the zoo, right? And Jerry's like, we're not going to the fucking zoo. I actually, I don't know, I found those moments endearing. I did. I get how his little kiss on the cheek could be a powerful moment. Syrupy, yes, but I was both on board and a bit cynical towards the kid. So I kind of come in a more polarized mm-hmm. approach to the kid. But you brought up Cuba Gooding Jr. And we have to talk about his role and his family, the Tidwells. They are great in this film. I loved Regina King as Marcy Tidwell. Mm -hmm. And Cuba, you know, he won the award. He has the great Oscar moment, which you alluded to in the last episode. He just kills it from the show me the money, which I didn't remember coming in so early in this film. Just so much energy. I wanted to ask you, though, because it's tricky and I don't even know if I can really touch upon this. But they felt like a caricature at times and then they felt like they were created with so much warmth and love that you welcomed it or you forgave it. But... I don't know. There was some moments where I kind of cringed or felt uncomfortable, especially even things that were supposed to be funny, which was oh. like the very 90s moment where a kid at the airport says, are you Hootie from Hootie at the Blowfish? <laughs> Such a random thing. <laughs> I forgot about that scene. <laughs> yeah. Another moment of Cameron Crow pointing out his rock right acumen. But there was just like a little too much of the family as all id, all passion. 
And even though it was, I would say, portraying it or depicting it in a loving and favorable light, it came across as something that boxed them in racially almost, or boxed them in as a certain type of class that I found kind of gross at the same time. It's, it was tricky, but it felt a little dated at times. I can see what you're getting at, because there are times like where you don't want to be the, the quintessential black athlete. I get where you're kind of getting at with that. Because like, you're getting the, the idea that he has all his people around him, dependent upon him. You're creating a stereotype of an athlete who needs money, essentially, right? But I, I like the way he explores, because that first scene where you see him going through the house, and I love the way he goes. It's the idea that he's established, he has his contract, the idea that his wife and him have been together for a very long time. They went to college. They both majored in marketing. I love they're both on the same plan, and they have this, like, idea of what he wants to be again that's the other thing is like big family is a real thing you know i love the idea that that his brother and cousins are there and i love the idea that his cousin's always talking shit to him too like oh, i could beat this fuller's brother you know i think it adds to the family dynamic because it really comes in to regina the king's best part when he gets hurt and we get the raw emotion of fear and like she kills it in that scene that's my favorite scene in this whole movie is you just get those shades of how good of an actress she is and how good she's going to be when she when she gets a substantial role. And you see it there. Like, we talk all we want about Renee Zeller in this movie, but you watch, like, that scene alone. Like, holy shit, that is the money shot right there. I mean, come on, show, show her the money. But anyways, I like how it builds up into his character of, of him believing he is larger than life and that his family is on board with him. It kind of speaks to that togetherness, united, like the idea that there's this large goal and it's dependent on this head of the family, which I like that it's more of that. It's not that it's his posse. It's, he's the head of the household and all of them are dependent on him and he's throwing all his marbles into the bucket with Tom Cruise. And I love that she's always on his ass. When we get that clash between her and Renee Zellweger, Renee Zellweger tries to stand up for did you know he's broke? That he's this and it almost falls flat because the establishment, the portrayal can look stereotypical. But I think when you break down the nuance, and I think he does this deliberately, the roles are reversed. Tom Cruise, is, he learns more from Cuba Green Jr. than Cuba Green Jr. learns from him in the end of the movie. That's basically you know, the subplot. Learns about love and responsibility through Cuba Gooding Jr., through his client which is another interesting dynamic. So I think it's, it's a balance, actually. I think you're supposed to look at it that way, particularly in the beginning. I love the beginning. He, he takes up all the time on the phone call, so he loses all the clients. And you're right there with Tom Cruise. I love it. He's going off about, you know, I got ants on the wall. Tell him I got the ants on the wall, right? Jerry Rice got this. It's also a realistic thing because Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is, is on the fringe. Tom Cruise doesn't give a shit about him. And you have to be larger than life. And again, it, it contrasts with, the white athlete who doesn't have to act that way. The white quarterback who's going to get drafted first doesn't have to be the loudest mouth in the room. This cut's already there, right? And I, I love the idea that the established player on the franchises won't shut the fuck up until he gets what he wants. No, I love that you make a parallel between the two because they really are kind of on similar ground in this film and they need each other and they call each other out. They grow with each other and they reciprocate moments of advice and vulnerability. I think they have a really strong bromance. So you basically yeah. call it that, right? It comes down at the end when that great scene where Jerry Maguire is standing outside of the press. I love that moment. You know that he's going to finally spot Jerry Maguire, who's outside of all of the you know hoopla around his big night on Monday Night Football. That great stiff finger point that Cruz does, right? And their huge bro hug. So powerful. And that's the culmination of all of these moments. And they have so many great moments together. They really do. Perhaps one of the strongest moments for me is actually when Tom Cruise and him are outside of the stadium not too long before that. 
and he just breaks down Tidwell, right? He says, I'll tell you why you don't have your million dollars, right? You play for the money. You play with your head, not your heart. When you get on the field, it's all about what you didn't get. Who's to blame? Who's got the contract you didn't get? That is not what inspires people. Shut up. Play the game from your heart, then I'll show you the quant. And that's the truth. I read some articles about how this was the era of Deion Sanders, who's also featured in this film as a very, very germane cameo in this film, because he was the player to really brashly flaunt his money. He was a player to talk about how much he made. And in this article, they kind of dismissed that Cruz lecture as a shut up and play type speech which we talked about last episode with Costner and Chadwick Boseman's character, right? Where he says like, stop tweeting, right? It's this problematic ongoing trend of the corporate, usually white figure telling the, of whatever ethnicity player, right? Athlete to shut up and play. And it comes off as belittling, just basically as aloof in form of a superiority complex that has many dark undertones. And they also call it stodgy, anachronistic and racist. I did not find it to be that in this film at all. I think he really works his way around it. And I wanted to bring this up because it is a tricky portrayal of the Tidwell family that Cameron Crowe is working with. But I agree with you that they are learning from each other throughout this film. And if anything, the Tidwells are more enlightened and more filled with love and the proper ethics than Cruises, right? They stick with them from the get-go. They really do. And that's kind of heartwarming. The fact that he screams, show me the money. So if you think about it on a very flat, superficial level, like all about greed and profit, but he's also about loyalty. He never doubts for a second that he's going to jump ship on McGuire. As long as McGuire's with him, he's with McGuire. And by the time they're eating dinner and Regina King's character is pregnant and goes into labor, right? You really feel like they would be out on a double date with each other. I really did. And I love them as just a pair of couples that learn from each other and grew from each other and push each other to be stronger. I also want to touch upon a few other things you said, which make Tidwell's character very tricky. And one is that he is the patriarch, right? And you're saying that he has his whole family to take care of. And there's so much risk that he's taking, right? By not taking the small contract to get the big one. But he also has a lot of self-esteem issues, right? We have the great moment where Cruz has to give him this speech to be confident, right? He basically has to stoke his ego and tell him all these things so that he can walk with the pizzazz and have the aura of self-belief. And you see that he is like Jerry Maguire, a man who has this external self that portrays one thing and this internal self that's filled with doubt. And I really like that. And he also has a lot of problems with money too, because which I didn't find believable though. He's still in the NFL. He's still playing for the Cardinals. Why doesn't he have a plumber fix the leak? Dude could afford (laughs) a plumber to fix the leak. He could afford a pest control person to come take care of those ants, right? This was over the top to me that they showed him as barely surviving in suburbia as a major ride receiver on the Cardinals. I did not buy that for a second. And that's just going to be filed away in the cabinet of things that are necessary for the screenplay that really make no sense in reality. But no, I actually really loved the sort of symbiotic relationship that Jerry Maguire and Ray Tidwell have throughout the film. I like what you said there. I, one thing I, for me, maybe a flaw in this movie is like the positioning of Tidwell and like his like importance on the Cardinals. Because I understand the importance of the movie, right? And how moving it is and how you're supposed to move with him through that. That's effective. But then negotiating and like, because I've had the same line when he tells me to shove and play, it brings red flag because that is not the motto of today. 
but he is not a LeBron James player. They're like Tom Cruise speaks to him and he clarifies, you're not Jerry Rice. You are not Moss, whatever. You're, you're not those dudes. You're at the bottom ring. He doesn't say it, but like that to me kind of positions it in a way that the movie didn't yet. It's an interesting thing. We just watched Draft Day and every character is clearly positioned. You know what their worth is in terms of the plot and the actual teams. So it carries the a weight of the like the logic of the plot a little bit differently. So I was with you in that one scene. I, I felt like it comes off as knowledge. You aren't Jerry Rice. You aren't that level. You'd still need the stats to justify. You're never going to get that contract. Is how I took it. You need to get some stats to get the next level contract that, that's just better than the one they're offering you pretty much. And to me, that's kind of a flaw in the plot is it doesn't do enough didactic explanation to people who aren't familiar with contracts, et cetera, like that. It's, it's a weird thing because then we're just left with, he's a hero. We have to root for him. But then when, we, when we're breaking down the last game, because I agree with you, those are great scenes. The motion of Cuba Green Jr. is awesome when he's walking out. I love when he points at him. But I'm still like, it was just a Monday night football game. If you're watching this as a fan on Monday night football, and he comes off crying, I'd have to have the knowledge that this dude was in a contract, negotiations and all that stuff. It doesn't play that way. To me, it's kind of detracts from the logical story world as you're watching it. We talk about this all the time with sports movies. Like a lot of the movies, movies we watch, the big game isn't the big game. It's not the Super Bowl. It doesn't have to be the Super Bowl. And I get that. This one though, Monday night football isn't big enough as you know the big game. Monday night football happens every Monday. It's normalized. It's the biggest game of the week, but plenty of other bigger plays that probably happened that weekend. So my point being though, it takes me out of it as a viewer where I'm like, these performances are so good, but I'm also like, this is the same as like the replacements or whatever, or, or whatever movie we watched that where the game, major game wasn't a championship game is my point. So it's really interesting because it is a big deal. I get that he got the bigger contract, but I'm also like, he's not the superstar he wanted to be. So it's weird when the when everyone's going around him because he got the game-winning touchdown, which is why everyone's around him really, is you go get interviewed, guy got the game-winning touchdown, then he would start crying all that. Why aren't the reporters talking about that? To me, that, that's one of the things that kind of threw me off because if I was a reporter, I'd be like, what got you crying? What, what did that moment mean, right? It's so outside of the sports realm. So that maybe might lead to another discussion of where the sports play into this. The reality of sports is kind of lost in there. It's funny that you bring this up because my wife was watching it and she said the same thing. She doesn't follow football in any way. It baffled her. Why is he suddenly worth $9 million more because he caught one ball? And he what got knocked. Add up? <laughs> yeah. And he basically, we're supposed to believe, probably got a concussion, even though he got up and did his wild manic dance, right, where it's really funny. And I could see that night the reporters all being attracted to him. I can buy that because he's a star of that night. He had that huge moment. He gets knocked out. So there's this traumatic human connection to him. Everyone wants that interview. So I buy that. But I don't buy the leap to him getting this huge contract, which we get at the very, very end of the film when he's on that TV show with Roy Firestone. Did you remember Roy Firestone from the 90s at all? Like vaguely. Yeah. Very vaguely. Yeah. He was basically the Barbara Walters for the sports world, right? He was very psychophantic. He always complimented whoever he was on to a degree that was unctuous and gross. He became kind of notorious recently because during the OJ Simpson heyday, he had OJ on and basically helped exonerate OJ before the public for battering his wife. He spoon fed him questions. He has a dark legacy in that sense. And we end the film with him getting Cuba Gooding Jr. to cry on camera which is a trope that I've seen many times. We saw it a bit in any given Sunday, yeah. right? You have to think that Stone kind of stole a little bit from this with the whole crying on TV. But the fact that he cries because of his contract, it's annoying. 
I really get annoyed because there's so much depth and complexity and, and humanism to this film. And that's what he's teaching us is that there are a cynical world that's obsessed with commerce and mercantile things and materialism that we need to get back to loving one another, having confidence to taking a leap of faith. Yet the coda of the film is that he's making a lot of money. So the world's great. It's basically a tribute and a celebration of capitalism. I don't understand it. Completely off the mark with ending the film on that level. And talking about the materialism for a weird segue, we have to talk a little bit, because I love to talk about this, the 90s stuff in this movie. I brought up the Apple Jacks. There's Horizon Milk. There's a comment of getting a deal with Sega Genesis. There's the Reebok shoes. Do you have anything that you picked out that was very 90s? No, like one of the ones I caught was the like old school, just 90s laptop where you still have to like keep all your papers and stuff nearby. It's like, it's got like limited memory, limited battery and stuff like that. But you only use it for a few things. I thought that was very like quintessential, like shows shows he's a business dude in the 90s. And they had the big cell phones too, right? To show me the money. He's on a huge cell phone. And then later when his wife is calling Jerry, when he's concussed and knocked out on the field, right? She's on a corded phone, a landline phone. And it's one of those see-through translucent trendy ones at the time and it so reminded me of the 90s so there's some little things i also want to throw in the fact that this film is based upon a real person we haven't brought this up yet we have to touch upon this jerry Maguire is inspired by lay steinberg who believe it or not is still at the top of the game today he is the sports agent for none other than mahomes and he got the money shown to him from kansas city right they duly obliged his request and gave mahomes the first ever half billion dollar contract which is absolutely nuts To put that in perspective, it is more than any other player in the history of the NFL in what they've earned over their entire career that he got with this 10-year contract. It's double Eli Manning's career earnings, who was the current top lifetime earner at the moment. Crazy money, right? Extraterrestrial money. But Lay Steinberg has had a huge career. He represented Troy Aikman, who has a cameo on the film, Steve Young. So it's based on a real life figure. But I don't really get how or why. I don't know if he really has this story that he quit his job because I don't think that's true. It's one of those things. It's a little weird. I read all these articles about him and how it's based on him. And it seemed kind of cool because he made this huge deal with Mahomes. But it's Mm -hmm. uninteresting because it's just a sports agent. So they just picked the most famous guy and said it's based on him. But also before it was Tom Cruise's role, right? It went through a few other actors. We both read about Tom Hanks and you spoke before the podcast that you would have liked it as Tom Hanks. I want you to touch upon that real quick. I think Tom Hanks would have brought the the sincerity and the less, he would have brought less charisma to the role per se. I think that would have suited this movie better, particularly with the moral quandaries of the movie. It would have brought that level that I think this movie is constantly like just juggling around. And I think Tom Hanks, based on his work, would be perfect to kind of bring that balance to this. Yeah, I think that he would have been a much more subdued Jerry Maguire and it could have worked very well. I don't doubt that Tom Hanks would have sold this film. It would have been very different though. And in retrospect, it does feel so Tom Cruise because his off-screen persona really nicely mirrors Jerry Maguire's fictional persona. I think that that just works so perfectly. But cast Christian Bale. Interesting. Yeah. Got that and, whole like American psycho, but he's not a psycho kind of thing going on. Like, 
And actually, I was about to cast, but the beginning of that movie had strong Gordon Bombay vibes. I felt that in the first few scenes. Emilio could have been pretty strong as well. Even Woody Harrelson was offered the role. That was an interesting one. How, how would you see Woody Harrelson fitting in, in this particular role at that time? That's the other thing. Yeah, think about him at that time because he turned down this role and he ended up doing Kingpin and Larry Flint instead. I think he's so much better suited for those. I think he would be wrong for this role. I like Woody yeah. Harrelson a lot, but he's wrong for this role. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. This time period, I haven't lined up with that one with him and Antonio Banderas with their boxers. Always, always love that one. Yeah, because Woody Harrelson doesn't have the poignancy to me. There's a lot of pathos in this film. There's a lot of rich emotional vulnerability in this film. Mm -hmm. All those things that Tom Cruise has, he's unhinged. He can be histrionic and yet charismatic. He is always half crazed and he has a candor to him. And I don't think that Woody Harrelson has that. He's kind of snarky and mm. wry and what? He's got that more folksy quality to him that Tom Cruise doesn't have. That too. He's folksy. Woody Harrelson is more of a man of the people. Well said. Yes. He is too much a man of the people. And you needed Cruise because Cruise is both all of these very humanistic things, but he's also a little callous underneath it to most people perhaps, because he feels like an alien. He's so perfect or so mm. high octane. I think you needed both of those. He, he really plays this well. And at this time, Cruz was basically at the top of the game. This was his year. This perhaps like no other year epitomized Tom Cruise as an actor because he was in Mission Possible. He was in Eyes Wide Shut and he was in this film. So he was an action star. He was in a rom-com and he was in a prestige, right? Art school film mm -hmm. with his wife that had all the uh, drama and had Stanley Kubrick. So he had a trinity of films, a trifecta that really blew his stardom to the next level this year. And I think it's just the perfect year for Cruz. You know, he is such a big actor, right? He has had 45 roles over almost three and a half decades. He's a spy, a bartender, a samurai, a contract killer, been everything. But I don't think any role is more iconic almost than Jerry Maguire, which is weird to me. I mean, <laughs> he is, you know, the lead in Mission Impossible and he's got Top Gun. What do you think is his most iconic role? I feel like Top Gun. That's the thing about Tom Cruise, though, because he's he's very young looking. He's cross generations. So the generation before us, my sister's generation, Jennifer Puga, shout out here. She was all about that movie Cocktail, where he plays a bartender. Which again, if you watch Cocktail, it's the mark of Tom Cruise and the, the looks he perfected in that movie are all over Jerry Maguire. But yeah, I feel like Top Gun. It transcends generations because of that military appeal, the Van Halen music. It's such a quintessential 80s movie. So many generations are introduced to it. It has a different appeal than like Point Break or these other high-powered 80s movies. But yeah, I'd say Top Gun. I got to ask another question. What is your favorite Tom Cruise role? Minority Report. Cool. Hands down Minority Report. I think that's, yeah, that's one of those movies where I'm not taken away by like the meta-ness of Tom Cruise when I, when I watch that movie. Yeah, he is way more porous or he blends into the film, I think. I think that's probably one of his best films. Spielberg does a great job with Minority Report, but to me, not his best role. I do think that this might be his best role or maybe Born on the Fourth of July, which is such a strong role. I really love that role. And of course, because I'm a P.T. Anderson acolyte, <laughs> I love his role in Magnolia as a self-help guru because it's the other role that really, on the point, casts Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise. Oh, I got Just, one, actually. Honorable mention for me would be Interview with a Vampire. Do you like him in that? His his back and forth with Brad Pitt's character. Going through memory lane here, but yeah, Interview with a Vampire. Yeah, definitely put that one up in there for me. Yeah, he's had such a tremendous career. 
career. Off-screen antics aside, he is at the zenith of Hollywood culture for our generation. We grew up with him, and then he, you know, he went on to War of the Worlds, he's done Mission Impossible continuously, he's famous for his stunts. Like you said, he's the reliable, with range, but he's always reliable for those huge blockbuster movies and then these more substantive pieces. Yeah, the fact that he's really veered more towards action, though, is a bit, to me, of a bummer just because I like his versatility. I like the other Tom Cruise aspects so much. He's a great action star. He's perhaps the best. I have really loved the latest ones where he keeps getting killed and waking up again and again and again and again. Brilliant. Like, I identify him more as an action star. And going off our conversation, I forgot to mention Tropic Thunder. He has the funniest dude in Tropic Thunder. I remember when I watched it, it took me a minute to realize that was Tom Cruise behind all that makeup. But him as the, was he the producer, executive, or whatever in Tropic Thunder, just speaking of what you said, he does have such good range, like just a wide range of his abilities. He can make you laugh, you know, he can make you believe he's a badass, uh, he can make you believe he's a romantic. And almost never is he in a truly bad film, because he makes even mediocre films decent. Like the Jack Reacher films, they're totally mediocre, and he, he makes them above par. Oh, see, now you guys are going down Tom Cruise, I'm going to stop, I'm going to start popping in now, because I'm going down the list of fucking Tom Cruise movies, and know which one just popped in my head? One with him and fucking in uh jamie fox collateral yeah, love that role completely opposite end of the decade but like now you're starting to make me like reassess how much i actually do like tom cruise yeah i mean days of thunder the firm rain man night and day i mean you can go too far with it he's in way too many movies that you realize i mean oblivion was a small sci-fi one i loved actually that's one of the more recent i really found myself recent sci-fi not recent not recent anymore but one more in the last decade of sci-fi movies that i found myself kind of drawn to yeah so i'm all for tom cruise in this but there was one other possibility that we can at least entertain. It wasn't an actual possibility, but one day Cruz wasn't available to read with Cuba Gooding Jr. So Crow called in Robin Williams as a, a stand-in just to do the reading. And listen to this. He had Mira Sorvino as Dorothy Boyd, Owen Wilson as Bob Sugar, and Luke Wilson as Crush. <laughs> so imagine a movie with these actors. It would be completely different. So this is a movie that is truly dependent upon the actors. Yeah. Big emotional moments, high wire acts of moral and sentimental exigency that they have to sell. And Tom Cruise, who is able to give that unblinking stare, that frozen smirk that just brings you into him, he can be both smarmy and yet genuine, is perfect for this movie. I think that he really is Jerry Maguire and the reason why it is so iconic today. And there's just so many moments in this movie. So we're going so long and we need to get back in the film. Let's go through some of the biggest scenes. We kind of touched on Show Me the Money, but also the Help Me Help You scene. I love that scene. There's a motif that's odd, too, of the vulnerable football players in just a physical sense as naked. They keep showing <laughs> new dudes in the locker room. And this one, once again, has Tidwell naked, but he actually is more clothed or clad in my mind than Cruz, who is emotionally naked in this scene. And it is so amazing. I love it. And I'm going to quote him here before we talk about it. And he's saying to Tidwell, I am out here for you. It is an up at dawn pride swallowing seeds that I will never fully tell you about. Okay, help me help you. And I feel like that works both ways. It's a film about relationships and about meeting each other in the middle and about people putting everything on the line and needing someone else to put everything on the line as well. That's why I love this scene. I really think it captures the film and its interplay of, as I said, vulnerability, embarrassment, self-exposure, self-disclosure, and desperation. 
all mixed up in this maudlin tornado of emotion. And that's why it is so classic. I mean, as much as I can knock on this film for some reasons, I do kind of love this film. What did you think about like scenes like these? Because you definitely didn't have the same emotional reaction as I did. And I want to just hear how this didn't work, perhaps. I, yeah, I, that's I, a good reading of that scene, actually. I like, I like, I like that reading of like, the idea of one being more naked than the other, both like emotionally and then physically. To me, it was just a funny scene when you get the reporter who, like, the guy who drops the towel or she drops a microphone right by the guy's crotch. Going back to like any given Sunday, where like the humor of the locker room. That one gets quoted a lot, too. But I don't know why that one didn't like really like pull me as much. I think it's because what you said, there's too much of, of the duality of it. Maybe I just identify more with Cuba Gooding Jr.'s role because I still, again, a lot of my viewing of this is seeing Tom Cruise as kind of predatory to the people around him, including Cuba Gooding Jr. and Renee Zellweger's character. In the sense that he will take advantage of them for his own means. And it's kind of him validly complaining, but also kind of like playing the world's smallest violin to your cash cow. It's, it's a weird dynamic. The vulnerability is there, but this is your cash cow. You're still dependent on this dude. He's your business, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a weird plea of, it'd be like if you're a farmer and you're talking to the tractor to tell the tractor to help me help you. That's a really funny analogy, but I get what you're saying. It's a strange dynamic to throw into the kink of their relationship or the gears of what they are professionally. There's a lot of like, we're supposed to sympathize with Tom Cruise as an agent and what that role is, but the movie doesn't give us the feel we need to sympathize with the role of the agent in terms of what they actually have to do. It doesn't look like much, but the main thing is that he gave up his job and he's broke. That's the underlying factor of all his troubles against money. It's just the idea that this is an endeavor and I'm all in on it pretty much. That applies to a football player in their entire fucking career is I'm all in on this. My body is all in this. I'm, he's like, I'm taking a chance on this contract. I'm doing my part. You know, I'm playing the game. Like, So it's a weird thing that the movie never really does. It relies heavily on the idea that we're always going to sympathize with Tom Cruise because again, it goes back to that delivery and the way he embodies the role effectively. But again, as for some viewers, it clashes with the other characters. And again, what he's trying to get at with his whole rebirth. I like how you're pointing out that in the context of what we actually know about sports and sports agents and what he would be doing for Tidwell, it doesn't quite work. In movie logic, it does. Yeah. It's almost like you have to scrap realism to to really get on board with this movie. It's a fantasy film. It's a fairy tale. But on that level, I think it's immensely brilliant on a writing level and just on an emotional level. And I want to quote David Ehrlich, who I mentioned before, and he talks about this scene and he says, Cruz kicks the wall. He says more with his fingers than most actors say with their faces. Even his teeth were on the call sheet that day. This is head to toe acting. It's dancing. It's Charlie Chaplin level genius for a generation that judged its movie stars by their muscular strain. I love that. It's really showing how much he's bearing of himself emotionally through his physicality in this film. That's not a very physical film. It's probably the least sports film of the sports films we covered thus far. Yeah. There's really only a few plays we even see. Yet, we're going to get into it, but it's a very underdog film to me. And on some levels, it is a very sports film because it deals with the philosophies and the internecine and internal doubts and obstacles you must overcome mm -hmm. to become great, both off the field and on the field, both in business and both in football. So I think that even the business side is a very sports film because it's all about competition and Bob Sugar's his rival, right? And he's rivaling him for the best player. And that works on many sports elements. And yet we have the career of Tidwell that also pulls us along. But you 
don't seem to think that as well. You brought up that it might even be less than Ace Ventura in terms of where it fits in actually being relevant in the sports pantheon. And I want to hear your take. Yeah, I think because I'm going to use the word, I think it's more of a sports fantasy movie from the athletes to the industry to everything. It's all about idealization of what both it is and what it could be. That's, that's definitely a theme, obviously, in the movie. But with Ace Ventura, it's, it's a comedy, of course, we have a comedy detective. But it's about the reality of sports and the impact of sports on athletes, the psychology of it, the idea that someone could be, their career could be so enthralled and identify that. And then that takes on an identity of its own and consumes your life that you have to have a sex change. All that is so actually deep and is ingrained in the idea of sports as identity. It's such a big part of Ace Ventura. That's not necessarily true for Jerry Maguire. We get that with Cuba Gooding Jr., but even him, it's, it's, there's characteristic elements of it. There's elements that are, are character. But again, Ace Ventura, the setting is still goes from the character of the athletes to the setting of the arena. Ace Ventura, to me, might have been more of a sports movie as I watch it. I could see that they're both very peripheral. Depends on your investment, almost, because Ventura is a detective film first and then it has that football element but we never even really see football being played here at least we get a big monday night football game i don't know because remember we have a lot of action on the football field for the sake of comedy too because the game is like the last scene is like the overarching thing we got dan marino we got snowflake it takes you in a way weird way into more of an arena setting than this one did on monday night football I, i just would say that they're equally so i would say that this is a rom-com sports film, and that is a detective sports film. I think they're both hybrids, yeah. and they synthesize it, and they totally fit in their unique ways. But I think that's an interesting thing they bring up. I really like that you bring up the question and the debate, because this isn't just a sports genre film only. I think many people would throw this in the rom-com section of a blockbuster video back in the day, and that's why my mom owned it. That's why so many people watch it every year. Some probably will even with their really generous genres, will call it a Christmas film just because it ends during Christmas time and it has a very warm vibe to it. It, it felt very perfect for this month being December when uh-huh. we're doing this. It's not very Christmassy at all, but it just felt like it. And we have to really delve, which we haven't done enough, into the uh, great moments between Dorothy and Jerry and their relationship. We have to touch upon, at least very quickly, Dorothy's sister, who has a great small role. I love some of the quotes. Don't cry at the beginning of the date. Cry at the end like I do. It's just great writing to me. It's very funny. And we have the really funny role of Kelly Preston, the late Kelly Preston, who passed away just this year. We all know her through also being married to Travolta. But she's hilarious to me as Jerry Maguire's girlfriend i don't know what she does though his fiance actually right there's a scene where she's setting up programs and they break up i really love that <laughs> scene but what the hell she NFL? she seems to be very wealthy too and very self-righteous and as one of the greatest lines in the film when she asks, are you breaking up with me no one's ever broken up with me before i love his uh, retort i'm not trying to make history here it's just it's really funny it's a really brilliant one-liner so we have those roles. We had a lot we weren't able to touch upon, but we have to move this thing on and get into those famous you had me at hello moments that are so strong. What did you think about the relationship? You've already said that you don't quite buy it on every level. Just throw in some of your two cents on the trajectory of their romance. Too cookie cutter. 
I think for me. Again, I have very strong memories of this movie being advertised before a lot of movies you see at the theaters. So a lot of the trailer shots are the date stuff, the stuff that would get you to see it as a you know, romantic date night movie. Those are the moments I think relied too heavy on the physical appearance of Tom Cruise. I don't really buy Renee Zellweger's infatuation with Tom Cruise. Like the lines her sister tells her, like the idea that you shouldn't cry or anything like that. At that point, I don't, I'm not there yet. I don't see that, that intensity between them. I still see, like, as, as I said before, I still see this weird idealization of Tom Cruise himself in her viewpoint. So a lot of the dates play off as a weird power dynamic for me because this is still a movie about a boss dating his coworker. <laughs> and, then, and I think when you watch this movie, it, it taints the viewing in, in this day and age when you watch it because it's it's basically like a textbook of how you want to get hashtag me too today pretty much if you're going to do a startup. Watch Jerry Maguire, the Academy Award winning movie. Find out how you can get super sexual harassment today. That's how you might want to pitch it today. So it, it does take away from the romantic elements of it. It's cringy in some ways because you're basically making all the moves. You you can't make those moves anymore, dude. There's no way around it. It's, again, carrying on in my reading of it. When you see her as looking at him as the way out, it's a weird thing where the employee is also taking advantage of the employer. <laughs> to me, it, it's a whole, it's, it's an interesting like employment law case. Well, that's one of the weird things about 2020 that, I'm not on board with actually. I think it's almost insane as well. We consider ourselves a democratic free country, yet more and more our corporations are banning anyone from finding significant others and the workplace. Yet for many people, they also want to control and dominate the majority of their time throughout the week. So they dominate our life and yet we can't find love in the space that we are spending the most time in. It's bizarre. It really truly is. I get that there's, you know, some tricky moments and some shitty moments and there's some gaps, right? There's some human errors, some gosh mistakes. And this one has some of them. But I love this era where the mistake could happen and he apologizes. There's an oddly relevant reference to Clarence Thomas, who was in a scandal at the time, right? Basically the same thing that brings us back to the Me Too movement, which brings us back to Brett Kavanaugh, where Clarence Thomas got brought up again. Like going back to the Clarence Thomas reference, it speaks to the time because even at the time, this is in the zeitgeist. This is in the social consciousness. This is a taboo thing. This isn't okay. But it's sanctioned by a movie in a weird way. This is a time when this was getting a lot of flack back. So it's really interesting that it plays as a joke well. They're aware of, of that taboo nature. Again, it, it plays into the eroticism of it in a way. But this is where I think that we're disingenuous as a culture because she's into Tom Cruise. She's into him in the airplane scene. Uh, he's probably reading signals. And is there really a huge power play? A bit. There is. I won't deny it. But he's also a total mess. And she's keeping him afloat as well, at least emotionally. They're in this together. They've both jumped into the deep end together. And yeah, he is making an ass out of himself. And then kissing her, he does it even more. But he immediately apologizes, calls himself out and leaves. And that's just an awkward human moment to me. I don't feel like I have to think that Jerry Maguire is a creep or an awful person. I think he is attracted to her and does what people... No, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with reading, but also the sister kind of sets it up where we're supposed to think of him that way. Because I feel like the times aren't like that different. When we actually look at the breakdown of the scene, the sister is, hates men. She has a divorce group of, every time you show up in the, into the scene, it's the divorced women talking about their trauma or like, it's supposed to be kind of funny trauma too. It's not like they're abused by like, you know, domestic violence stuff. It's about them, the fact that they're, they're divorced, they just can't find someone else. It's kind of like their complaint, their conclusion that all guys are bad. And then she basically gives her that definition of like, and she says, he's your boss, there's that. She gives her all the red flags. And then, of course, like you just point out, she dismisses the red flag because she wants him. I agree with you. There is that reciprocity there, that idea that is it's sanctioned. It's okay. 
between the two of them. But it's interesting because there is a dynamic and that Clarence Thomas line is so poignant. It's a good line for the time. It says so much to the audience right then with that Clarence Thomas joke. It says so much to the audience with the joke and with the sister's jadedness and skepticism towards men and the divorce group's presence in their house. It builds up to make that last scene so strong. And one of the common occurrences in this film that I noticed was that not only are there moments of embarrassment, right, or vulnerability, but all these take place in front of an active crowd of voyeurs, which adds so much heft and anxiety, right, and tension to the scene. I mean, I think that makes it so much more powerful. And we have a really cool dynamic, I think, between Jerry and Dorothy. It's the fact that he is attracted to her and he likes Ray. He loves perhaps seeing himself somehow as a savior in their lives as well. And he probably feels a little guilty about the fact that they've taken such risk for him. It's complex, right? And they don't quite love each other. You, you see when they're watching the wedding video that he is in inner turmoil while they're saying their vows, basically. There's a lot of doubt going on. And they both know this. And it's this scary, tumultuous, ambiguous marriage that they have and they have very brutally honest and quiet moments right where they have these conversations where you realize that they're talking about splitting up you know he'll say something like what do you want my soul or something and she says this great line why not i deserve that and it's perfect it's what i think appeals to women so strongly about this film is this deeply romantic film you realize she doesn't believe that he's truly in love with her and she doesn't want to be a pity object. She wants to be a wife, right? And that's why that line when he walks in the door and he says, hello, I'm looking for my wife. He says that so strongly, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very, very powerful moment because that's the first time he says it with a degree of clarity and conviction that he lacks throughout the entire film. That's like the first thing he really says to her with conviction. And it makes it so deeply romantic. And you get the famous speech, right? Like I said before, it's made much more impactful because you have the divorce group watching it. I I wouldn't call them like feminists, but a bunch of, for all the probably the right reasons, mopey women who like to quote unquote complain about men because they've probably got the shitty end of the stick in their life from men. And you see them being won over by him, right? He talks about it being a very cynical world we live in. The fact that their company had a very good night, a very big night, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't in the vicinity of being complete because I couldn't share it with you, he says. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I miss my wife. You complete me, which goes back to, which harkens back to the scene with the deaf couple in one of their first moments in the elevator. Uh, It harkens back to her quote that says, in this age, optimism is a revolutionary act. It's that they're going to be this embodiment of love and idealism in the face of jadedness, in the face of disbelief, in the face of cynicism. Love it or hate it, thematically it's rich. Feel free to roll your eyes and take it a totally different way. I, I would love that too, but I, I, I totally like buy into it. I like it. it together though, because it is well constructed. It does tie back to like all the themes and whatnot. But then at the same time, to me, it's that weird, too much of the disarmament of the predator. It's a good setting. I do like the setting of the household and the divorce group and how the divorce group is so antagonistic, but quiet when the man enters a room. They don't want to like hurl insults at him. They want to see what's going to happen. It's like this gossipy thing to it too. It's kind of really interesting. But then you also see how he disarms his sister who's so on guard about him and he disarms her with a look. I like the idea that's so cyclical. It's a good ending, 
but still within that framework of it's, it's a kind of a sad ending. It's a relationship that, that, that's doomed to fail. It's a relationship that's not meant to be. And I like the idea that everyone sees it throughout the film and they vocalize it, but because he's so damn good looking and he can talk so well, they're instantly disarmed. Now, Lovely disarms all of them. Even like you said, he closes the deal. He did the job. He did the thing. It's already done. But now I can come afterwards and I can sentimentalize after the fact, which is all Tom Cruise's character is in this. And I think it's a consistency speaking to Crow's credit. There's a consistency with the character. And I think in my reading of it, it's not that good of an ending. I think it's meant to be cringy because he doesn't change. The relationship is, in my view, I would say, is doomed to fail. And I kind of like that about the ending as, as I, as I, um, I kind of like pontificate about it. It makes me like Renee Zellweger's like complicity in it more. The idea that she can be persuaded by this, that everyone can be disarmed by it and that it is bad for them and they are probably not going to have a happy ending. But like you said, it is worth being the optimist and throwing your chips in there. The only thing they have in common is that they're both just certain degree reckless people i can read you that i like that but as the scene unfolds though the moments that, are, that i think most audiences swell over and I'm, I'm in the corner rolling my eyes i think i'd be one of those hens at the table rolling my eyes absolutely uh understandable i think that is a very credible way of seeing this because as much as i buy into it because it's movie magic let's just awe and coo over it and i'm all down for that actually i like rom-coms i think they hit a sweet spot i'll, I'll buy into it but if, if i put on my logic brain and my rational brain there's a lot of problems with this and a few of them are like he talks about he wanted to see her laugh and her smile and you had the date right and you had some few good moments but you don't really feel like they've had this deep enough relationship that he really even has that much to pull off from he says this it doesn't feel credible what you do feel is that he's on a dopamine and serotonin and euphoric high mm. after finally realizing he might make some money and get his career back on board. And so he's just kind of expunging that or vomiting that into the world. He feels so good and euphoric, which often happens that he's in a manic state and recklessly avowing himself. And that will dissipate by morning almost. <laughs> A funny, funny thing someone pointed out is that in the song that plays over the credits and that plays when they're walking with Ray near the baseball field, that kind of corny moment where he throws the ball over the fence, mm -hmm. which makes us think that maybe they'll have a long relationship because, you know, that's kind of uh, foreshadowing he's going to grow up and they're going to nurture his athletic career. It's Bob Dylan's Shelter from the Storm. And it's a very dark and cynical ballad. It's very pessimistic. It tells a story of Bob Dylan's marriage from the first meeting to the bitter end. I just think that's quite hilarious that he ended with <laughs> this song. Choice. You could say that, okay, you just pick the song because how it sounds, but this is Cameron Crowe. This is someone who geeks out about his music. And perhaps he is telling us that this is our happy ending, but it never really has a happy ending in real life. And I kind of love that read. I thought it was really <laughs> funny to me, cracking up when I read that. The other thing that made me crack up is that when he shows up at this divorce group and he gives the famous, you complete me speech, uh, Bleacher Report broke down the logistics <laughs> and <laughs> it makes zero sense. They point out that the game happens in Phoenix. So it probably finishes around 930 at the earliest. And he sticks around for the post-game interview, which is another 45 minutes easy, and then realizes that he needs to tell her he loves her, right? So he sprints out of the stadium. He drives to the airport. This is near where I live. I know where the stadium is. I know where the airport is. It's another 20 minutes at least. He has to purchase a ticket, get on the plane. At the earliest, he's arriving at LAX at 1.30 a.m. Pacific time. <laughs> 
she says that she lives in, or I think around Manhattan Beach, right? So you add another, let's say, well, at least there's no traffic, right? But let's say another 35 minutes to get your bags at the very quickest and get a taxi and get to your house. He's showing up at 2.30 in the morning. This is a crazy divorce group, man. These women are, <laughs> hey, dudes. they love to go at it, right? They'll go all night. I just don't buy that at all. And another funny thing is that you had me at hello line. Renee Zellweger thought it was really an odd line, which is almost blasphemous now because it's the most famous line in the film. But think about it. He walks in the door and says, hello, I'm looking for my wife. And she is in the kitchen. I guess it does work because she just hears his voice and says hello. I was almost going to say like, she doesn't even hear that part because it's so early, but maybe it does work brilliantly. She, oh, no, I'm with you. He talked, the group of divorced women, he didn't shout, where's my wife? He didn't come like, where's my wife? He's like, I'm here to see my wife. He's pretty low in the tone. <laughs> My last question for you, and it's ended a strange note, but there's this character, Dickie Fox, and he's the like voice of reason, maybe Greek choir sage-like figurehead who randomly jumps in and gives these aphorisms throughout the film. And he ends the film. This person we have almost zero connection to ends the film. What do you think about his character? What do you think about throwing him in here, right? He says stuff, it's like, if the heart is empty, the head doesn't matter. Roll with the punches, tomorrow's another day. The key to business is personal relationships. What was your feeling of him? I like what you said. I felt like he was the framing device to give us the themes for the next act. Although I will say, because I point out, like, like you point out the, with the heart and empty hands and stuff, they're kind of conflicting at times. But I do think they're kind of a synopsis of themes we're engaging with. Totally. I also just thought as I asked it, that he's spouting slogans and mottos that are trites right they're bromides they're they're dead cliches and this is what we're supposed to be railing against and then he realized that his mission statement is the same thing <laughs> and it's this kind of kinko's world corporate world parade of flashy yet facile statements <laughs> and i just think it's so funny that he ends on this very plastic note for this film but anyways on that note this is uh, probably the most divisive or i go back and forth i vacillate quite strongly film for me you're a little bit more on one side at least let's get into some of the reviews we need to tackle sure. some of the reviews and hear what other people think. All right, so let's go ahead and get into some of the critical and audience scores. Uh, as we always do, let's start with our Rotten Tomato scores, our handy dandy tomato meter. For Jerry Maguire, critics scored it 83%, and then audiences scored it with a 79%. All right, so it killed it, obviously, across the board. Obviously, that's the highest rated one we've had so far, which isn't a surprise. It's an Academy Award winner. I did think audience score, this is me, I thought that was going to be higher. I agree. I thought it would be in the upper 80s. Yeah, I thought mid, mid, say mid 80s, upper 80s. I don't encounter very many people who don't who dislike the movie. At the same time, it's a little schmaltzy. It's also a little dated by now. Mm -hmm. And it is a rom com. So that's a tough one. All right, let's go ahead and read a couple of these reviews from some of our critics first. So I'll start with Mike Massey from Gone with the Twins. Uh, the dialogue is superb, bringing these relatable characters and their grounded situations, an extraordinary sense of authenticity and hilarity. I like that, short and concise. Short and concise, and it's also a 10 out of 10, right? It's a high, high praise, and the dialogue is pretty superb. Whether it's believable or not, it's just got a wittiness to it, this perfect banter, uh, yeah. It's well written. It's probably a brilliant screenplay to read. Yeah, I was going to say, definitely just based on the conversation we had, a lot of the, even for me, a lot of the complaints are from overthinking the existing plot. I'll, I'll be honest with that. That's my own viewer bias. But I agree. As, as you read it, there are some lines that would normally be, like you said earlier, cliches that they do find a way to ring true in this. Again, going back to the concise, concise this particular review is, I think it speaks to 
why it has, has even 79 after you know almost 20 years the dialogue does come off authentic i mean simple as that yeah i like that we pointed out the fact that we love to nitpick and if you do nitpick a rom-com usually you're going to come off with a lot of gems but mm. a little bit unfair to what it's aiming for and on the rom-com level the dialogue and the emotional moments are resoundingly successful and that's why this is a huge film and it's been a huge film for almost 25 years now so i'm going to tackle a review by dave kerr with the new york daily news he gave it 3.5 out of four stars he wrote zellweger's rumpled anti-star quality plays in perfect contrast to preston's buff and polish she redeems jerry Maguire and tom cruise by making him human again it's really <laughs> on point i love that i like that critics for the opposite reason i had a different reading i like preston's character because she's much more real to Tom Cruise than Renee Zellweger's character ever would be. The scene where she punches him in the face after he breaks up there, after she just schooled him a lesson of truth, basically be like, yeah, you made a stupid decision. Now go fix it. Honestly, that's like some good advice from your fiance. And then of course he, he's hurt by it. And his response is to flee the relationship. There's so many strong side characters in the movie. And I particularly Preston's character, where she's the weird kinky girlfriend, you know, she's not the girl next door, right? She had a lesbian experience in college. You have to get that in there, right? And it's in there funny though. It's dropped in funny. We're just like Tom Cruise. We're all like, where the fuck did that come from? Right? Is as she drops in this line, which again speaks to that idea of the authenticity. But I, I disagree with him in this, in this regard where I feel like like, actually, she's the better fit for him because she was the domineering, take no shit, tell you where you stand, which is what a dude like this who is completely transparent, full of shit, needs. He needs someone to call his bullshit on him. And I feel like the fact that he runs from it speaks to, as we say, to more how well-defined the, the screenplay is. I have a different reading of Renee Zellweger's relationship with, with Tom Cruise's character, Jerry Maguire. This illuminated so much about this film existentially suddenly for me because the idea that we think of someone being a more human with the Zellweger dynamic, right? And less with the Preston, and that's what we've been saying, is a fallacy because being human today is being a corporate sort of predator. That is being human. Like what is being human? What is this ideal that we talk about that's not real and it's not natural? I also thought of the interesting dynamics in which with Preston, right? He was highly successful, but he was an inferior. He was a low level agent in this big company. And I think that it works in the sense that with Zellweger, she's more passive. She's very supportive. She also plays a role of inferiority. She submits to him. I think that works because now he needs to be the boss. He needs to be the, the person of authoritative strength. So interesting review. And I really never thought of the two female characters too much because they're not really in any scenes together. So I didn't juxtapose them in my mind. But I think it's really interesting to do. So this next review comes from Dwayne Berg of The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Dwayne says, on the jock front, Gooding is so believable in his role as Jerry's selfish, pea-brained wide receiver client that the Dallas Cowboys might consider signing him to compliment Michael Irvin. 2018, this one was written. <laughs> a little sports jab there in that one. Going back to the idea of what we call it for the 90s. Come on, the Dallas Cowboys at that time were the football team of the 90s. And that particular portion of the 90s, I remember. You know, everyone, when you played football in the, in the schoolyard, you either pretending to be Emmett Smith, Deion Sanders, Troy Aikman, and the other kids usually be Steve Young or Jerry Rice of the 49ers. So that, that definitely spoke, struck a cool, like, uh, personal nerve with me. 
It's definitely slightly on point that that showboating culture I brought up earlier with Deion Sanders is now the norm. We don't even yeah. question it or blink an eye. Sorry, yeah, it's, it goes back to the conversation you brought up with the show up and play thing because there's a place for it now. It's encouraged, particularly in the NFL now, because it's fought for so hard for players to be able to do that shit because players wanted to be able to do this. And speaking back to the idea of people at large or the, the culture at large not wanting them, whoever that may be, maybe it's a good, okay point to bring it up. We didn't talk about the celebration scene, right? Which is the giant touchdown, him dancing. <laughs> I didn't count how long it goes on for, but like it, it reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Homer writes celebrations for NFL players, which kind of carries home we're talking about here. It's along that line of excess. But yeah, today I love it. When I watch NFL today, I love when Tyree Kill does backflips in the end zone because you know the corner couldn't catch him and he's sitting there in front of him. I love that stuff. And they even have that weird video monitor today in the NFL where they all run in together and do this weird dance. Yeah. It's part of the, sh- the show. It's theater. And I'm all for it. And Hollywood is theater works perfectly together. It's perfectly complimentary. And I would almost feel remiss to not talk about Cuba Gooding Jr.'s off-screen blemishes as well. That's even a euphemism. He's basically the most stained reputation now, and especially in the Me Too movement. I don't even want to get too deep into that because it's actually really dark. It's not just Tom Cruise and the Scientology, which is pretty dark itself. But I think there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had with this role in Cuba Gooding Jr. and what he meant in that time period in American pop culture with that Oscar speech and Mm -hmm. what he became just like there is with Bill Cosby, for example. I think that I had to bring it up, but I don't really have anything to say on it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a good point bringing it up because we're just talking about parallelisms of themes from the movie here. And we were critiquing the main character, Jerry Maguire's supposed taboo, when really, as you point out, there's a whole other issue of, of the actor themselves. I think it's worth bringing up in terms of our discussion and you know the meta-ness of the film. These conversations, like when we nitpick into these things, they are worth dissecting in depth. Yeah, and to think about Scientology is predatorial and to think about Tom Cruise's complicit nature, at least. I've watched some documentaries and it's very fascinating. There is possibility, as powerful as he is, that he kind of got embroiled and blackmailed to a degree to stick with it, but also for monetary reasons, he probably just stuck with it. He made a lot of compromises that are not savory by any stretch of the imagination. What we really know about Scientology, I think, is still gray, even with all the, the, you know, Alex Gibney-like documentaries that are fascinating. I don't really have a strong take on whether or not I should completely think Tom Cruise is the bane of existence or anything because of his relationship with Scientology and some of the situations it puts people in. But it definitely puts a cloud over his head, to say the least, and an interesting cloud over his head because of this character, which is teeter-tottering on the line of morality and of exploitation and of manipulation and of using charm and sleazy glibness to prey upon optimistic and idealistic people, right? It just plays so well in this in so many ways that it's fascinating, but I really don't know enough at the same time. All right, let's jump to Letterboxd. So what did you find on Letterboxd? Wesley Stencil wrote this on Letterboxd, quote, Cameron Crowe has a unique approach to tone. He simultaneously tells stories of indulgent wish fulfillment and disarmingly low-key drama that feels like real life. At one moment, characters rattle off snappy dialogue. At the next, they trip over themselves and hit their heads on hanging light fixtures. And after a lot of seemingly disconnected scenes in which very little happens, 
you're suddenly left with the impression that everything has happened. I like that breakdown. Stencil's description does touch on kind of what we've said as well, the, the small nuances of just setting and physical action that really lend themselves to, to these, what is an iconic, iconic performances, both from uh, Zellweger and Cruz. Absolutely. And Stento goes on. I like that you picked the best part of his review, but he also notes that there's a duality of larger than life elements, right? He brings up the cheeky narration, multi-million dollar contracts, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character and personality as a whole. And they're nicely balanced with very down-to-earth moments and settings too. Dorothy's house, Dorothy Boyd's house, is just very lower middle class and cozy and warm. It really plays nicely between worlds and between the monumental and the everyday. And I really like that. The review that I found was very short and it was written by Garrett. And he wrote, great Tom Cruise movie because they tear down his persona right at the beginning of the film. So basically... This person's also looking at it as a strange meta film now with the context of who he is as an actor and as a celebrity and who this character is and all of the uncanny overlapping and superimpositions of those two narratives, of those two mythologies and how they play with each other. is fascinating. And mm-hmm. we could endlessly go in circles about it and come up with very insightful things, but I don't think we'd ever get at the bottom of the truth because both are abstruse and enigmatic and so convoluted and multifaceted that there is no one truth. Let's see. So this next one from Letterboxd comes from Amy Andrews, who said, quote, this has got to be one of the oddest movies tonally that I've ever seen. Like grotesque sports comedy combined with the over-top romantic monologue, beyond strange, but still cried. I kind of had not a similar experience. I didn't cry, but the idea of the tone, like I said, between the bromance, between uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and then fitting in the actual romance it's it has so many different tones and but yeah i I agree with her her words beyond strange it's a little bit overstuffed even roger ebert i think wrote that he felt like there was too many subplots i'd read they crammed too much in and you could almost feel that i do think they all nicely offer counterpoints though Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the strengths of this film it has all these octaves and some are slightly dissonant but mostly they have harmonious or mellifluous compositions that it really, as a whole, has feeling to it. I think that it does try to throw a lot into it, but everything at least works on something else. Anyways, I'm going to get back to the basics because that was an orotund lyrical ranting by me. So I'm going to throw a review that's by Scarlett Worthington and they wrote, feel like shit, just want 90s Tom Cruise back. Uh, <laughs> I think that's definitely one of the feelings I had with this film is that I didn't think too much as well. I just wanted 90s Tom Cruise. Reject everything, just eliminate it, subtract it from the equation, and just enjoy the majesty of these huge hyperbolic emotions and this huge film that epitomized so much of the 90s for me. That's a little bit of what Jerry Maguire was for me. So do you have any other reviews? Yeah, I got one more. Um, this is from Sam Meltzer, who says, uh, my mom to me after we finished watching the movie. Pretty sure Cuba Gooding Jr. has a bigger ass than Kim K. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kim K wasn't big in the 90s, but I imagine my mom probably said something along the lines like, that's my sister about Cuba Gooding Jr.'s ass in that movie, because they love Cuba Gooding Jr.'s ass. That's another thing we didn't get to. That was another subject of the zeitgeist of this movie. Women love Cuba Gooding Jr. then. I also thought that there was another really funny line where they thought that Mr. Magoo was in the film. <laughs> There's some really funny ones. 
So reviews aside, let's get into our own takes. This will be interesting. I'm curious of where you end up. This is probably one of the first podcasts where I don't know which side you'll take. Do you find this to be an underdog film or an overrated film? All right, so I'm going to qualify this a bit, but I'm going to say I find this an overrated film in regards to its prestige as you know an Academy Award winner and as a 90s zeitgeist film. I do believe it's overrated in that regard as I watch it again. I do think it's overrated as a sports movie too, in terms of where it's held sometimes in the pantheon of sports movies. I agree with you on the sports front. It's overrated on a sports movie front, but it's also on all the lists of the best quotes of all time. Kind of wins that. I think that these quotes just are timeless. It has some of the best scenes of all time. Such a strong and pivotal and seminal and monumental 90s movie. It's so iconic. So many careers, even though they weren't launched by this film, I think became stamped in American pop culture for throughout our lifetimes from this film that I think it's an underdog film to this day. It's beloved. And I think that there is valid reason for that so as perhaps tom cruise's most tom cruise role and cameron crowe's best film i am gonna stick behind this one and call it an underdog film now next week we are going to move to a different sport and we're going to do high flying bird which is pretty exciting for me i love this film i've seen it recently and it's a steve soderbergh film that came out on netflix it's got a lot of dialogue and just really clever and deals with agents like we said and it deals with a strike and deals with the business side which is this theme that we're tackling this cluster of films is behind the scenes sports films i don't think we've said that enough so we're doing all behind the scenes sports films and i think it fits perfectly in with jerry Maguire and with draft day and i know you haven't seen it or really know very little about it coming in cold to this one yeah so i'm, I'm just excited for you to see it because i think you will like it quite a bit on that note great conversation and i look forward to talking again soon show me the money show me the money